0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night.
1: Hey there. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Famously, the Oscars are this weekend. And the Oscar goes to... And famously... The Oscars are really, really bad at awarding women directors. In nearly 100 years, the Academy has only given the award for Best Director to three women. Jane Campion. Louise O,
2: Catherine Bigelow.
1: How would you characterize the landscape for women directors in Hollywood now?
3: Oh, you made a face. <laughs> Wow, you're really starting with the biggest existential question. Uh, I thought maybe, you know, we would sort of lead up to that.
1: That's Maya montanez Smuggler. She's a film historian and archivist who traced the rise, fall, and re-emergence of women directors in her book, Liberating Hollywood.
3: The state of women directors in Hollywood today, well... And I don't mean to say this to be wishy-washy, but it's complicated. (laughs) As Nancy Myers, a director,
1: would say in her movie, it's complicated. (laughs) Um. (laughs) It's complicated because women directors are finally starting to get their due in the upper echelons of Hollywood. In the past decade, we've seen Catherine Bigelow, Chloe Zhao, and Jane Campion all win Best Director – And yet, at this year's Oscars, women were completely shut out of the nominations, despite women having directed 18% of the top grossing films in 2022. I think it's pretty clear that the state of career director women in Hollywood is better than it was, say, 50 years ago.
3: But it's still awful. It's still kind of awful. It's better and it's terrible.
1: Today... Maya and I are headed back to the golden era of women directors, asking why they disappeared and what barriers women directors face today. After a quick break.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor FX presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality. So you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator.
3: It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome.
1: And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Maya, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh,
3: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here with you.
1: There's a moment that you open your book with, when Catherine Bigelow received the Oscar for Best Director for *The Hurt Locker*.
2: From among the five gifted nominees tonight, the winner could be, for the first time, a woman.
1: Barbara Streisand handed her the award. Well, the time has come.
2: Catherine Bigelow. Woo!
1: And Babs herself is underrecognized as an incredible director in her own right. Um, And and you say in the book, it's a little hard to hear, but Barbara Streisand kind of jokes with Catherine Bigelow asking, can I hold it (laughs) about the award?
3: Yeah, it was a really precious moment and a really painful moment. Sometimes I feel like that's how all these moments of quote progress really resonate emotionally with all of us who are, paying attention to them for our whole lives. This really is, um,
4: there's no other way to describe it. It's the moment of a lifetime.
1: The other thing that, Um, that sticks out to me about this moment is that that Oscar win happened in March 2010. And that was, you know, the first time a woman won Best Director, 2010. But Hollywood didn't always work this way. There used to be more women directors. Can you take us back to a time when women were actually much more represented in the film industry than maybe we think of them today?
3: In early American cinema during the silent era, there were many more women filmmakers and there are lots of different kinds of women filmmakers. And so there's comedian Mabel Norman, there's Nell Shipman, who's making sort of action-adventure films out in a a more sort of wilderness landscape. She's doing her own stunts. And then uh, the filmmaker Lois Weber, She has her own production company. She's in that top tier of film director's She's really interested in sort of domestic marriage, heterosexual Mm -hmm. uh, relationships, white middle class, and really interested in bringing up these sort of moral dilemmas for her characters. So, for example, she makes this film called Where Are My Children in
1: 1916.
3: Mm -hmm. a feature film about a white middle-class family, kind of upper-middle-class family. And the woman and all her friends are trying to legalize birth control. Hmm. She's making these films that not only present big moral questions, but she doesn't completely resolve them. And so she's really leaving some questions for her audience to reflect.
1: Okay, so during the silent era, you write that there are at least 57 women working as directors. Among them is Lois Weber. But then we hit the talkies. And between 1930 and the mid-1960s, there are only two recognized women directors. That is a huge drop. Yes, it
3: is. (laughs) It's
1: tough. You know, it, it wasn't like a natural process, though, that led to fewer female directors there were systemic changes that resulted in the pipeline kind of getting squeezed. Can you lay that out? So the transition to sound, that transition
3: was an enormous economic risk. And so it demanded tremendous financial investment. And so wall street is brought in to assist and, and invest in Hollywood's Hmm. shift. And so with wall street comes the masculinized culture of the financial industry Hmm. and Hmm. production is centralized. The production of films talent is under contract. Hmm. We have the big studios that are controlling production distribution exhibitions. We have vertical integration. And so Hmm. with that comes just a more traditional social culture within this creative industry. And so women are not going to have that creative and financial control that they
1: had during the
3: silent era.
1: Hmm. You know, it, it, in talking to our, our editor, I kind of reminded her of what happened with celebrity chefs or even just that sort of being like a chef de cuisine yeah. and cooking, uh, where once an industry becomes, quote unquote, professionalized. Yep. It creates more gatekeepers, and and thus that shuts, you know, marginalized people, people of color, women, out. But 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 there were two women. Who who were they?
3: We have these two singular directors, Dorothy Arzner, mm-hmm. who transitions from the silent era to then become a director during the 30s and 40s.
4: I know you want me to tear my clothes off so as you can look your fifty cents worth. Fifty cents for the privilege of staring at a girl the way your wives won't let you. What do you suppose we think of you up here with your silly smirks your mothers would be ashamed of?
3: And then Ida Lupino, who was a well-known actress who then starts her own independent production company in the late 40s. You see, they tell me I have to decide whether you and I stick together, whether we both go our own ways. Tell me. Couldn't we try it?
1: You got an Ida Lupina poster. poster yeah. behind you.
3: It's like 10 feet tall. It's crazy. Poster is, <laughs> it's my inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. And she writes and produces, and sometimes she even directs herself. So those
1: are the two singular women directors during the classic Hollywood era. You know, that takes us to the 70s, though, which is described in your book as a time that people thought of as a period of extraordinary potential for people who wanted to direct films. There was a boom in independent filmmaking and in the distribution of foreign films in the United States, which kind of shook up the, the filmmaking marketplace, studios were trying to keep up and pump out movies while also trying to capture these young audiences, these young, probably, now that I think about it, boomer audiences. Yes, um, a big, who,
3: yeah, the big boomer audience.
1: Exactly, yeah. the big boomer audience who's grown to have different, like, ideals and tastes than their greatest generation and silent generation parents. And so they needed young directors. Hollywood is looking for young directors what did Hollywood do to fill that need? As
3: the industry then moves into the 60s and 70s, civil rights movement, feminist movement are changing mm-hmm. every aspect of American life, social, cultural, pop culture, legal. And Hollywood is also really trying to adjust to the times, the studio system has declined. And so who's going to make these movies that's going to um, catch Hollywood up with mm-hmm. audiences. So in a lot of ways, it's very true that if you were young and ambitious and love film, you could make a movie in Hollywood, make a movie for a studio in Hollywood. But the important part of that is if you were a white man. And so there's a lot, you know, all these important and and favorite films, Martin Scorsese Peter Bogdanovich, Mm. Francis Ford Coppola, Mm -hmm. um, Hal Ashby is a a little older than this sort of figurative generation, but Mm -hmm. he's in there, Warren Beatty. There's like this sort of paradox that there is all of this change, all of this social change, all of this political change taking place, counterculture, youth culture, drug culture, Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. um, anti-war movement taking place. And Hollywood, of course, wants to capitalize. And a lot of um, executives are also part of this generation, this new this new Hollywood generation that's revitalizing the industry. Mm-hmm. And so you would think, oh, so this means then we're going to see more women filmmakers, all kinds of women filmmakers. We're going to see more filmmakers of color. And we don't.
1: <laughs> Somebody that you, the, I also, I mean, I, I knew of this person to be a director later in life, but I didn't know the as much of the detail around Maya Angelou's desire to yeah. direct and her efforts toward that. And you get into that in your book. Like, talk to me about that. I mean, you know, this is Epic. you're talking about Barbara <laughs> Streisand earlier, yeah. right? This is Maya Angelou. She had now Barbara Streisand and Maya Angelou should have made a movie together
3: in the seventies. <laughs> exactly. Would have been incredible. <laughs> But yeah, incredible. I mean, talk to me,
1: how is someone like Maya Angelou kept from becoming a director that she wanted to be?
3: Oh, my goodness. In the 70s, she is, it's announced that she is going to adapt for the screen and direct I Know Why the Caged Birds Sings for uh, as a film made by an independent production company and that right. she's going to be the first Black American woman to do this. She Mm. joins the Directors Guild as the first Black woman in the feature film, or in the director category. So Mm. this is an incredible historical moment. She is so busy in the 70s. She writes the screenplay, uh, original screenplay for the film Georgia, Georgia, starring Mm. uh, Diana Sands in 1972. She really wanted to direct that film, but... They picked a Swedish man to do it instead. (laughs) She ends up not being able to direct. I know why a cage bird sings and it it ends up being made as a TV movie in 1979. And she talks a lot in the press about how she was really frustrated with that. She really wanted to direct that film. Hmm. So she is just constantly on the brink of something and she just never can make that feature film in the director's capacity. Of course, in 1997, she directs, she makes her directorial debut with Down the uh, In the down Delta, the Delta. For Showtime, and she's in right.
1: her 70s. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, you've really broken down the fact that Barbara Streisand and Maya Angelou were... Um, Uh, kind of kept from realizing their, you know, directing aspirations during that period, um, or at least in the way that they wanted to. Two of the biggest, most impactful women on, you know, American cultural history ever, right? If they couldn't do it, (laughs) then it kind of, it kind of uh, poked some holes in that ethos that anyone can make a movie. In the last 13 years, since Catherine Bigelow's Oscar win, we have seen a couple of other women um, win for Best Director, But when you sort of pull back, you can see that in the grand scheme of things, not very many women have even been nominated for that award. (laughs) Like I think it's fewer than 10 have been nominated for that award in the history of the Oscars. Um, And so it's good to see some progress. But, you know, as we mentioned at the top of this conversation, that this year is a shutout for women directors, even though there were films that people have been talking about, like The Woman King, like she said, or women talking, or after Sun. There's evidence of change, right, in the last 13 years since, since Catherine Bigelow won the Oscar. But still, it kind of <laughs> feels like, to your point, we're jogging in place a little bit. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, sometimes I think like, then let's just, you know, not worry about the Oscars. But of course, we have to, because we're not going to give the Oscars a pass, because they represent the highest accolades. And to give them a pass is to give, you know, the the legacy of sexism and racism in Hollywood a pass. So we can't do mm-hmm. that. And we just have to always be talking about all of the films made by women and all kinds of films and all kinds of women filmmakers. And we just have to do that in the same breath. It's what our job is to mm-hmm. always be balancing that conflict of no progress <laughs> with evidence <laughs> of something great and fabulous work. Hmm. And even the flops too. <laughs> you know, and, and of course to be able to have a failure and bounce back, which is, you know, which is
1: That's the key. That's
3: the key. Yeah.
1: That's the, that's the real. Cuz I mean, t- I'm not going to name names, but there are a lot of men <laughs> who have made a career off of being like, hmm. <laughs> I don't know how this movie is going to turn out, but it is your 12th feature film. So. Right.
3: Second, Good third, 10th choices. I mean, sometimes, yeah, that's really, and you hear <laughs> women directors say that all the time. Like, you know, I had a one small film. It was low performing. And then that was it. it. took me 10 years to get another chance. I mean, that's awful. To be able to build a robust filmography that has some flops and mm-hmm. successes because... Filmmakers have to grow. They have to practice their act. I mean, I can't imagine that everybody gets it right every time. I mean, some people do, but...
1: <laughs> Maya, thank you so much. This was, this was a dream of a conversation for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it was so great to get your mind on this topic.
3: Thank you, Brittany. It was great to be here with you.
1: That was Maya Montañez-Smuckler. Her book is called Liberating Hollywood, Women Directors and the Feminist Reform of 1970s American Cinema. Coming up, I'm digging into our cultural obsession with the ultra-rich on screen and what all those rich people TV dramas
2: do to our psyches. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.
1: NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup, only from NPR.
2: You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day.
4: From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term.
1: Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Lately, I've been watching a lot of movies and TV shows that immerse us in the lives of filthy rich jerks. Triangle of Sadness, The Menu, The White Lotus, Succession. And I don't watch Billions, but I did just learn that it's about to have four spinoff shows.
4: You can't swing a diamond-studded something or another without hitting a prestige project about the ultra-wealthy. There's a lot of these shows.
1: That's Nina Metz. She's a TV and film critic at the Chicago Tribune. And she thinks there's too many stories about the super elite especially when there's been increased public interest in organized labor. Last year, union petitions were up by half and over 200,000 Americans became unionized workers.
4: Did you know that last year was such a big year for union organizing?
1: I was not aware that many new unions had formed in the U.S. I had had no idea.
4: And those storylines are absent
1: (laughs) from what we're seeing in TV and film. I chat with Nina about what happened to all the union movies and what prestige dramas about the rich actually do to our psyches. Nina, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks for having me. To jump right in. These pieces of media or entertainment, these films and TV shows, are obviously being ushered in by executives. But also, I mean, they are being released to a public that is enjoying them at the very least. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if some of these shows, I don't love the characters. I don't feel like following every plot line. I'll show up every week because some of them are just well done. What is it about these shows or movies about the super wealthy that appeal to us as viewers?
4: I think there's a few different reasons. I think audiences are seeking out escapism. And escapism is not without value, especially when it feels like the screws are tightening. I sometimes think of it as thumbing through a a copy of Architectural Digest. It's fun (laughs) to kind of like dive into those spaces. Like you said, they're very well made. The acting is terrific. And these different shows are doing different things. I think Succession's appeal is that you know it's this group of very punchy people mm-hmm. who are dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. The writing is very antic and sharp mm-hmm. and it really invites you to laugh at them. Greg,
2: this is not Charles Dickens world, okay? You don't go around talking about principles.
4: Which is can feel sort of funny. cathartic, right? Yeah. Like you have all this money and you're, you're still so miserable.
1: miserable. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And on some level, you're like, I might have student loan debt that I'll be paying off for the next 40 years of my life. But I know a mother's love or like, right. you know, right. or like me and my siblings haven't plotted on each other, <laughs> like exactly. in very serious in real ways. It's like almost like cold comfort. But many of these shows like Succession and The White Lotus, or even the, extending outward to films like The Menu and, and Triangle of Sadness, these shows and films can be critical of the super rich. In your opinion, do they go far enough? I would say that these
4: stories are primarily critical of individuals who are on screen. Mm. They're not critical of systems that exist mm. and systems that are sort of deliberately designed to benefit the few at the cost of the many, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a very deft way of not actually having to engage with the issues. Like, let's talk about The Menu. The Menu is a movie where if you are a legitimately rich person watching that, which, by the way, a lot of people in Hollywood would fall into that category. (laughs) Sure, sure. If you're watching that, it's very easy for you to say, well, I would never be an obnoxious person like that guy. Mm. That John Leguizamo is playing. Mm-hmm. Or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I would never yeah, be yeah. like those finance bros.
0: You know who we are, right? Yes. <laughs> Flip us a little bread. No. Ah, Did you say no?
3: I said no, yes. Okay.
4: okay. Wow. I am cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm polite <laughs> to service workers, right? It gives you an out. It becomes like about personal behavior rather than the structures Hmm. that create all this inequity and perpetuate it and sort of lock it into place. I mean, I think we're seeing eat the rich stories, but those aren't going to galvanize anyone to do anything, right? Which is probably the point.
1: Mm. With the lack of union TV shows and movies and a lot of TV shows and movies about billionaires. What messaging do you think Hollywood is sending to America?
4: There's something sort of defeatist about it, I think. The best you can hope for is to laugh at these fools with their money. And I think a lot of people would disagree with me because they get sucked into the stories. But I think ultimately these shows are very there's something empty about them. The world doesn't need maybe another story about the inner lives of the wealthy. Like, we we have been immersed in the inner lives of the wealthy. And at the same time, there's a conspicuous dearth of other kinds of stories. I think Hollywood executives should feel that question aimed towards them. Hmm. Why aren't you
1: giving us these stories? Why? We've been talking about stories about power, at least just within the context of this conversation, Kind of between two poles, there is like collective action and the Uber wealthy to you know to whom we are nothing but peons, right? But there is a third narrative trope that Hollywood loves to rely on, and that is that of the superhero. And I think that presents like another way of thinking about power, where you have the big bads you got superhero or a cadre of superheroes who are there to defend the defenseless who right. are thought to be you know people like you and i and right. these superheroes have extraordinary abilities that allow them to stand up to these big bad guys they're special right there's generally only one or fewer than 100 of them <laughs> standing up to you know the forces of evil in this world our studio executives could they be so attached to the superhero trope that they can't imagine making a popular movie about collective action.
4: Right. You know, the guy who's the creator of The Boys, which is a TV series on Amazon, which is sort of a satire, let's say, of a <laughs> lot of superhero tropes, has has sort of argued that so many years of superhero movies maybe have conditioned people to feel like someone has to come save us. Hmm. Like, we don't save ourselves, It's someone else's job, someone with more resources, more talent, more whatever. I think there's actually something to that because there's another genre, especially on TV, which are cop shows. Right. And so to me, I think, huh, if you look at these stories in aggregate, what they are saying is, if there's any saving to be done, Hmm. leave that to us. Because you regular degular people – You can't beat the odds. Hmm. If we take all of this together, maybe that's one message that's being sold to us. Well, on the flip side, you sort of have the narcotic of succession, the white lotus. Hmm. None of these things are inspiring people to action. So again, is that intentional or is that just a byproduct of what's been happening in Hollywood right now? I don't know. But I do think the media we consume isn't just entertainment. It seeps into our subconscious and Mm. it shapes the way we think about the world and the way we think about what's possible. So if seeing regular people band together, if that was ubiquitous in TV and film, it would probably seem less daunting.
1: The lack of representation around unions is even more surprising to me. When you think about the Hollywood writer's strike of 2007, 2008, which lasted months, lasted months. It lasted so long that it changed the media landscape. It it paved the way for the rise of reality television because there weren't writers. So producers and execs had to come up with unscripted programming. Many of the people who are working in TV today remember (laughs) this writer's strike of 2007, 2008. But also like Hollywood is preparing for the possibility of another Writers Guild strike this spring. There's probably a lot of Union scripts out there somewhere, right? Somebody's writing these Union stories. Yeah. But where are, I guess, the the, the Union shows and Union movies of today? Like somebody's probably writing these things. Why aren't they getting to the screen where you and I might see them?
4: I've heard from a few people very off the record that, Mm -hmm. you know, they will have meetings with development executives who would be interested in storylines like this, but further up the food chain, it's just not going to get greenlit. The very Hollywood executives we're referring to would be the targets in this story, of bosses who need to reform and stop (laughs) exploiting their workers. So we're not in the rooms where the decisions are being made and where executives are sort of speaking freely. So all we can do is try to extrapolate from what is getting made.
1: Are there narrative challenges to making union movies?
4: I mean, I think there are challenges to making a good story. Hmm. And I suspect that there are many screenwriters who can and do want to do this. They're just not getting the funding. They're just not getting greenlit. I was uh, looking back, you know, there's all these old shows on Tubi. The A-Team is one of them. Uh The A-Team was this action-adventure show from the 80s. It's a goofy show, and it's about these sort of uh, soldiers of fortune who help out the little guy. I I did not expect to see an episode devoted to helping farm workers unionize.
2: The A-Team thanks you. The newly founded Workers' Cooperative thanks you. You'll have a union in this valley over my dead body! That's exactly what I was telling our union members this morning. We're working on a thing... This
1: is in 1983,
4: this episode airs.
1: I mean, that's squarely in Reagan's
4: America. That's right. And we don't even just see... A a random episode like that today on broadcast network TV, it's just not showing up as a storyline, let alone the main storyline. You know, the most recent show that really sort of dug into this was Superstore.
1: Yeah, I loved that show.
4: Yeah, which, you know, has not been on the air for a couple of years now. Yeah, It was the last one. It was a show about work. I really like shows about work and the work of work. (laughs) And Superstore was about work. And it was told from the perspective of these big box workers unionizing and what that process
3: looked like. Sandra is going to be passing out some union authorization cards.
2: Can I keep mine on my wallet?
3: Oh, sorry. I should clarify. After you sign, I file them with the National Labor Relations Board.
2: I'm going to laminate mine.
3: Uh, no. Again,
4: I do need those back. If we're talking about like on the shows that currently exist on a show-by-show basis, why aren't we seeing storylines either like that one-off A-team episode or more sort of concerted storylines? I think there's the fear that when you talk about like labor issues, it sounds like eat your vegetables content <laughs> does not sound fun, right? Oh, gosh. I can see
1: that. I can see that.
4: Like the White lo- – let's go on a five-star vacation right. to the White Lotus. Right. I don't want right. to do labor organizing. But here are two shows that are very popular that are not necessarily about unions, but they're about work mm-hmm. and labor. Abbott Elementary. Yes. And The Bear. Yeah, so these are two very different shows about people, some of who don't even like each other, coming together to problem solve, to strategize, to figure out a way to do the thing together. It's hmm. not an individualistic project. It only works if we all come together to figure this out. And those shows are funny and very, very popular. So there's sort of these outliers that I think – provide a good counterbalance it's it's not enough but Mm. i feel like they are a persuasive argument that there's an audience for this people like these shows and they will watch them
1: well nina thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me thanks again to nina metz you can find her work at the chicago tribune this episode of it's been a minute was produced by barton girdwood alexis williams
2: liam McBain, Corey antonio rose
1: our editor is
2: Jessica Plachek.
1: Our intern is
2: Jamal Michelle.
1: Engineering support came from Joby Tanseko. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro
3: always sat with his equally nerdy buddies.
2: The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool.
3: And he often wondered,
2: why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that?
3: Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.